Hey, this is Mike C. of The Natural Man Podcast. I gotta get this out of the way right off the top. The Natural Man Podcast is intended as general information for educational purposes only and should not be constituted as medical advice or diagnosis of any kind or as a substitute for medical treatment. The information provided in this podcast is not meant to replace the advice of or treatment by any physician. Do not rely upon any information to replace consultations or advice received by qualified health professionals regarding your own specific situation. If you suspect that you have a medical problem, you are urged to seek competent medical help. The Natural Man Podcast and its representatives and agents disclaim any liability for any negative or other medical or other outcomes that may occur as a result of acting on or not acting on any information contained in the podcast. The views and opinions expressed by the host and all guests are their own, and their appearance on this podcast and at the website of the Natural Man Podcast does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent, and does not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the natural man podcast that's it here we go this is the natural man podcast with mike c welcome to the natural man podcast my name is mike c thanks for joining us for this episode Uh, this is an exploration into health wellness and discovering new ways to improve one's vitality And we do that by talking to various experts in their fields and and figuring out and biohacking the best ways to reach optimal health and maintain it throughout life. Um, Today, we're going to talk about hair loss. Uh, Hair loss is a common problem for many people. Uh, It's traditionally been viewed as a factor of aging, but it's also prevalent among younger age groups as well. There are a variety of causes autoimmune conditions like alopecia, hormone disturbances, nutritional deficiencies, and even certain medications. Experiencing hair loss can be emotionally traumatic for patients, and the experience can lead them to believe that they're helpless and unable to remedy the cause. So it's important to know that there can be treatment options for some forms of hair loss, and there are practitioners who can treat conditions associated with hair loss. Today we're going to speak with a physician who treats patients who experience this condition. She's a naturopathic physician based in Scottsdale, Arizona. She's a member of the American Academy of Anti-Aging Medicine and the Arizona Naturopathic Medical Association. She's a graduate of Southwest College of Naturopathic Medicine in Arizona. Please welcome to our podcast, Dr. Alexandra Mayer. Dr. Mayer, thanks for joining us today. Hi, thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, So looking back at your clinical experience, is hair loss avoidable? So yes and no. Hair loss is, is avoidable in a lot of cases, but there's a lot of genetic component to it, right? So it really depends on what kind of hair loss we're looking at. Um, are we looking at an autoimmune condition? Um, in which case you really need to dive deep into the body and really try to treat that autoimmune condition to get that external factor of hair loss under control. Um, Whether or not it's completely avoidable in that case is going to be more difficult to answer. Same thing with male pattern baldness, which is kind of the most common hair loss that we think about in men and then menopausal women. Again, there's a little bit, I tell my patients, there's this little bit of like chasing your genetics going on, right? So there's a lot of things that we can do to slow it down, but we're a little bit chasing the genetics versus in younger women or premenopausal women, there's a lot of causes of hair loss that are completely avoidable um, with good nutrition, a good hormone um, panel, really looking at the causative factors of hair loss. So there's a lot of different things that we can do. I think even if it's not completely avoidable, it is treatable in a lot of cases, which gives patients hope. Um, can proper nutrition help keep hair on people's heads? I mean, I'm a, I'm a male and, you know, in my middle age now and, you know, I think of it, I'm not, I'm not there yet, but you know, I don't think I'm, I'm approaching that age and I'm like, I'm ready to, I'm trying to ready myself for that possibility. Um, do you think that there's a nutritional component to that that can slow the process? Yes, there's definitely, definitely a nutritional component. So um, there's a few things to think about. I talk a lot in in younger women about certain nutritional components. For example, ferritin, which is your storage form of iron. Um, ferritin is 
in a high amount in your hair follicles. Your body's really, really smart. It's also in a high amount in your heart and liver. And so if your iron's a little bit low and your body needs to take from its stores, it's not gonna take from the liver because it's super smart and it's designed to keep you alive. So it takes from your hair. Um, Low ferritin is a huge component of hair loss, but then on top of that, there's other nutritional factors to think about. So like zinc plays a big role in hair loss. Selenium plays a big role in hair loss. And selenium is actually a funny one because selenium, you'll get hair loss if it's too small, like too little selenium, but also if it's too much. And so oh, wow. oftentimes patients go, oh, selenium's really good for my thyroid. I'm having hair loss. I should add selenium in. And if you're doing overdoing it, you'll get hair loss. Same thing with vitamin A. So vitamin A, actually, if you have too much vitamin A, you will get hair loss. And so um, the funny thing is, in all of what I just mentioned, you'll notice that I never mentioned biotin. And that's because although biotin does cause hair loss, don't get me wrong, it does, every single person who walks in my office is on biotin for their hair. Every single person. So um, I haven't seen it actually clinically be that helpful unless really? you're kind of biotin deficient. Yeah. I have wow. And I, it's on every like hair loss product under the sun. Oh, like yeah. biotins. When you Google it, that's the go-to biotin. Mm -hmm. And you're telling me that it's not actually that effective. So I think if you were biotin deficient, it'd be super helpful, right? If you were actually biotin deficient. But the majority of patients, when they wandered into a doctor's office for hair loss, they've already done those small things, right? They've already done the Google. They've added in the biotin, right? So almost everybody's on biotin. So obviously it's not going to be the magic cure because you wouldn't be walking in my office if biotin right. cured your hair loss. Right. Now, bio is biotin a B vitamin? Mm -hmm. Biotin is a B vitamin. So is it something that you, uh, you know, if, if it is a, a factor in your practice, um, I've heard that you should take B vitamins as a complex and not individually. Any truth to that? So in general, yeah, I think that if you're going to supplement, like if someone's going to supplement at home outside of knowing exactly what they need, right? Supplementing as a complex is going to be a better option. Um, I use this example a lot in my patients, which is um, methylation. So like the idea of methylation, right? So a lot of the time when we think about methylation, um, we think about folate. So methyl tetrahydrofolate, which is the methylated version of folic acid. Right. Um, now, wait, sorry. I'm sorry to interrupt. But before we go any further, can you tell our listeners exact? Can you give me a quick rundown of what methylation is just for someone who might not know? Yeah. So methylation is the is the um, process of donating a methyl group to something in the body. So you actually need methylation for everything. A lot of patients think about methylation in terms of um, neural tube deep neural tube defects when it comes to pregnancy, right? Um, so like spina bifida, things like that. Um, right. But you actually need normal methylation to make hormones. You need it to to make thyroid, you need it to have healthy energy. You need it to detox estrogen from the body. So methylation is a huge component of being able to detox your estrogen, which is important both in prostate um, cancer aspect, as well as female hormones. When you think about um, heavy periods, clotting, um, long periods, stuff like that. So with methylation, a lot of people, oh, and methylation is super important for um, your ability to make serotonin and GABA, so happy and anti-anxiety, right? Um, and a lot of the time, that's where we see high-dose folate used is in depression and anxiety patients, and they give literally high-dose folate. Well, when you're giving just high-dose folate, you're missing B2, and you're missing um, B12, and you're missing B6. And you need all of those things to be able to properly use your folate. They all work together, right? So by doing just one thing, you could be missing. So for example, you could have all the folate in the entire world and it's all methylated. It's all in its right form, right? You're not taking a whole bunch of folic acid, but you have no B2, which is riboflavin, and you won't use it right. So that's why in general in B complexes for sure, people should be, if you're going to supplement um, without knowing exactly what you're deficient in, then you should supplement with something that's a little bit more well-rounded because you probably won't use it otherwise. Right. And I don't think that's widely known among a lot of patients who, who tend to yeah. self-medicate. Yeah, I don't think it is. And I, and I see it a lot in patients where, you know, they read an article and they read about, you know, B12, for example, right? And then they go out and buy B12 and oftentimes they're not buying the right form, which is also a challenge. But then on top of that, they're not buying the cofactor so that it doesn't really give them what they need. 
Right. Right. Thank you for clarifying that. Absolutely. Um, tell me about some of the diagnostics you use to investigate somebody who's experiencing hair loss. Do they differ for men and women? Elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah. So when you're thinking about hair loss, you really want to think about a couple things, right? You want to think about what's actually going on at the level of the hair follicle. And the best way to figure out what's going on at the level of the hair follicle is going to be a biopsy, right? Um, sometimes you don't necessarily do that though, because oftentimes with hair loss, when you, when physicians get good at treating it, um, there is a specific pattern, right? And a specific patient that kind of wanders in with a certain kind of hair loss that you can you can pretty much tell what it is. Um, but the best way to get the a definitive diagnosis is through biopsy. Um, and, but you're also wanting to look at when you're assessing it, we're looking at things like what is the quality of the skin? So is there any sort of, it's called fibrosis, right? Which is basically a fancy term for scarring. Um, so are you having a scarring hair loss or a non-scarring hair loss, right? We know that scarring hair loss is much harder to treat. So things like frontal fibrosing al uh, alopecia is a really different beast to treat than male pattern baldness or even alopecia areata. Um, so we look at those, we look at kind of the quality of the hair, like the distribution of the hair loss, where it's happening, what the pattern looks like, right? So like frontal fibrosing alopecia often has this very stark, um, receding of the hairline, but in men, the hairline usually recedes like an M, right? So you get your, you right. get your peaks first and then it slowly goes back in frontal fibrosing alopecia. It, re it recedes like a, like a line like a really stark line going back. So you almost lose your hairline entirely, right? And it has that scarring quality to it. Um, then you also want to look at things like dryness. Um, dryness, are there any signs of um, fungal infection on the scalp, like candida or something like that? Is there um, any signs of um, psoriasis or eczema or anything like that? So you want to look at scalp quality, skin quality, um, and then the definitive diagnosis is usually through biopsy. Okay, so you mentioned candida. And I mean, we always hear about candida from a gastrointestinal perspective, right? I mean, that's the, that's the go-to cause of so many, you know, uh, uh, gut issues that people have. You're saying that candida can affect people topically on their heads as well? So it's different. It, it, I mean, it's considered to be a fungal infection of the scalp, right? And so fungal infections can be a, mar a bunch of fungus. Um, but candida does show up often in the skin, right? So often when you think about like a candida questionnaire, for example, um, one of the things that will show up in a candida questionnaire is going to be red itchy rashes. And they usually show up really bright and itchy and just angry looking, um, and have a mixture of other symptoms to them. So usually a mixture of GI symptoms, um, in women, sometimes it can be chronic vaginal yeast infections, um, changes in mood, changes in bloating, all of those things. Usually brain fog is a big one for candida. So, but candida can show up on the skin. Usually it tends to show up kind of in the folds first. So, um, you know, women like under the breast tissue, like where your bra line would be. Mm -hmm. is a big area for that. Um, but yeah, they, it can show up on the skin. Is it usually internal before it shows up or can it just be external? Like, do you think somebody has it systemically when it manifests on the, in the scalp? So you can get uh, fungal infections that are just a, a fungal infection, right? Like just in the area. For example, if you think if you think outside of hair loss and you think more towards like athlete's foot and things like that, oftentimes that can just be a fungal infection. You end up in with that area, you treat that fungal infection, it goes away. Fine. Um, when we are thinking about more systemic, you're looking at usually having multiple symptoms that are really hard to treat. So maybe they don't go away with the shampoos. They don't go away with a topical treatment. Um, and, or you have like multiple symptoms, right? So, um, Maybe you have multiple rashes in different areas or um, something like that. Then we might want to go more towards an internal perspective. Hormonal aspects affect hair immensely. Um, tell me a little bit about that. Like which specific hormones affect hair growth or weaken it? So this is a, this is a big topic. Um, and I, so there's a couple things to think about. Um, when we assess men and women, we really do assess 
hormonal contributions to hair loss differently. So in women, right, um, in younger women, if you are having hair loss that has a hormonal component to it, there's probably two hormones that are at play. It's going to be your thyroid hormones if for the most part, right? A lot of the time it's going to be your thyroid hormones or it's going to be your cortisol. Um, cortisol also does play a role in men. So any hair loss that's worse with stress um, or is stress-induced, cortisol can play a big role in that. And there's actually uh, studies, well-done studies on an herb called withania or ashwagandha, same herb, different name, um, that indicate that that is a great herb for uh, hair loss worse with stress. So um, cortisol plays a big role. Thyroid plays a huge role. So thyroid, what's interesting with thyroid is you can get hair loss with too much or too little, but it shows up a little bit differently. So if you're hypothyroid, oftentimes your hair fall, like you'll just be losing a lot of hair. You're not growing it in quite as much and you're losing a lot more hair. In um, hyperthyroidism, oftentimes the hair actually is a little bit more thin and has a different texture. So you are still losing hair, but you're also, it's, your hair just is different. Um, and that's something that we need to think about in hair loss in general is that there's a difference between hair fall, so how much hair is actually coming out of the house, out of the out of the head, head, or do you have a normal kind of distribution of hair, but a thinning of the hair or a miniaturization of the actual hair shaft, which would still cause you to be able to see the scalp and look like thinning, right? Right. In men, for hormones, um, the go-to with male pattern baldness. Now, this is in men or women. Usually male pattern baldness in women is going to show up in menopausal years, right? Um, in women and men, um, the culprit is DHT, which is dihydrotestosterone. So dihydrotestosterone is a very active metabolite of testosterone. So you convert to DHT and DHT is very active at the level of the hair follicle. Um, there's a couple things to think about. So when they've done studies in men, they've actually done studies in the same person and they've done biopsies in areas of loss and biopsies in areas without loss and they find that in the areas of loss DHT is higher but so are other inflammatory markers and other reactive oxygen species. So um, DHT is actually an inflammatory marker. So the question is, is it like a chicken or the egg scenario, right? Which one came first and we don't really yeah. know. Is it an increase in inflammation? A general increase in inflammation which causes DHT to rise because DHT is an inflammatory marker or is it the DHT causing an um, uh, increase in other inflammatory markers and reactive oxygen species. What's interesting is that a lot of people think that with hair loss in men that means that testosterone must be high, right? Your testosterone right. must be high if you're converting it to DHT. And systemically, I actually do not see that to be the case in the majority of my practice. Um, with men, I mean, by the time they're coming in for hair loss, now, there's a lot of men in their like 20s and 30s coming in for hair loss, right? But if, but in general, we used to see hair loss in um, patients who were in their middle age. Well, in that population, testosterone is usually declining and estrogen tends to be a little bit higher, the ratio of testosterone to estrogen. So actually, there's a little bit of a correlation between the testosterone to estrogen ratio favoring estrogen a little bit more. Um, and the other thing that's interesting is that I've run serum DHT and I don't even know, I can't even count. And it is never, it's never been elevated. So DHT is not actually usually elevated at like a systemic level. It's more like the level of the hair follicle. Wow. So you can't actually, you can have normal DHT serum levels and it can still be affecting your hair. Is that what you're saying? I have seen that many times in my practice. Yes. Really? Mm -hmm. Wow. That's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, that's, that's why, I mean, the DHT is definitely elevated at the level of the hair follicle if you're doing a biopsy. Mm -hmm. Um, but oftentimes systemically it's really not. Is DHT something that increases as we age as an inflammatory marker or is it something that you think we can sort of mitigate with healthy lifestyles so that's a good question i mean honestly i don't have an answer uh for that off the top of my head i mean more people do tend to convert to dht at the level of the hair follicle um some of that's going to be genetics right um some of it's going to be genetics some of it may be environmental factors um i don't think we really have a set answer on that at all now, iron is a big factor for women. Mm -hmm. Why is it so difficult for some women to get their iron stores up? 
So there's a couple things to think about. Um, oftentimes when it comes to iron, um, first of all, women in their years where they're actually having a period, right? It takes a lot less blood loss to lose iron than you think it does. Um, so I can't count the number of women that come in my office that I'll ask them about their cycle and we'll be talking about um, the amount of like tampons they use, for example, and they're actually losing a lot of blood and they don't realize it, right? Women don't talk about this. We just end up with like what I experience, everybody experiences, and sometimes that's not actually the case. So um, oftentimes it is that. But on top of that, there's other things to think about. So iron, first of all, is a notoriously hard mineral to take. Um, iron is really, really hard on the GI tract, especially kind of your over-the-counter normal, what your MD is going to prescribe to you. Iron supplement is going to suck on your GI tract. It's going to make you constipated. So the majority of women don't want to take it. And on top of that, iron's finicky. It doesn't like to be absorbed with certain things. It doesn't like caffeine and it needs calcium. It, need, it doesn't like caffeine. It needs um, vitamin C. It needs certain herbs. And so there's ways to prescribe iron that allow it to be absorbed a little bit better but the majority of supplements are just not doing that. They're putting in a really bad form um, with none of the cofactors. And then we're all taking it in the morning because that's what somebody tells us to do with our cup of coffee. And at the end, you end up with very little iron actually going into your body. On top of that, there is a correlation um, between ferritin levels and being able to keep your ferritin levels and um, testosterone actually in women. Mm -hmm. And so I've had a lot of patients where um, they cannot keep their ferritin elevated. Like, I mean, we've done serum um, iron transfusions and they still cannot keep their ferritin elevated. And testosterone has played a big role in that with their testosterone being really low. Usually it's out of the reference range, which is very, very low. Um, so there is some correlation between hormones, specifically testosterone and your ability to hold your ferritin. Can you see um, normal levels in uh, vegan women when it comes to iron? We always hear about red meat. Is, re is, is it better to be eating a more rounded diet? Does veganism stand in the way of regulating iron levels for females? So, I have a couple thoughts on this. Um, I, first of all, am going to answer this in the way of general getting in enough protein, and then I'll go to actual iron. So generally getting in enough protein, I'm seeing in my office a ton of intermittent fasting, which I realize is not your question, but it will yeah. ease our way into that. Um, okay. I'm seeing this a lot. What's really interesting is that the research in women, in premenopausal women for intermittent fasting is actually negative meaning that it shows that it does more harm than good, right? Wow. And um, I'm also seeing it in men where they've added intermittent fasting, but they don't actually have enough calories in their diet already, so they're not getting in enough protein, right? And they're not getting in enough calories, and then they add intermittent fasting in. So basically what they've done is they've shortened their window. They've, in the majority of people, cut down their calorie intake and protein intake even more, and they do end up with increased hair loss, and I've seen it. I can't even count in the last few months how many times I've seen this be a new contributing factor. And they'll actually talk about how I'll ask them, oh, have you had any change in diet? And they'll say, well, you know, a few months ago I started intermittent fasting. Um, and that's because protein intake matters, right? If you don't get yeah. enough protein, you will not create good hair. Then we go to the sources of protein, right? So I'm not going to advocate for eating bad sources of meat, right? Like very highly processed in hormones, um, not grass fed, all of those things, right? All those things matter. But we know that with iron, um, the non-heme form of iron, which is the vegan form of iron, right? Isn't very well absorbed and it doesn't really do as much as heme form of irons do. And the majority of women, I've had a lot of women in my practice who also are vegan and I very frequently can't get them to add in red meat, but I can maybe get them to add in a little bit of fish and they do much better on a little bit of fish, much better. And so oftentimes they're just not getting in enough protein and they're not getting in enough iron. Is there an iron supplement that you find more effective, like, like versus sort of the, uh, you know, the, the common pharmaceutical grade one that's prescribed by all the MDs? Is there, is there a, 
a nutraceutical that's, I'm not asking for a product plug, but is there sort of a brand or type that works better than the, the prescription stuff? Yeah. So here's the thing with iron, right? Iron is one of those things that you really want to get checked before you take it. You don't just want to be taking iron. Um, the only caveat to this is like the majority of prenatals will have iron in them for women. Um, because we know women need that, right? They have a, a hemodynamic shift that happens in pregnancy. So you actually end up with an anemia of pregnancy just out of blood volume, right? Um, so the majority of prenatal should have iron and then menstruating women can usually get away with some iron um, because again, they're having that blood loss. If you're not having blood loss, you should be checking your iron before you get on something. Um, for me, I mean, there is a product that I love um, it's called Iron Extra by Vitanica, and I like it because it's got a good form of iron, but on top of that, it's got um, a lot of different, like the vitamin C, the herbs, and things like that to help with absorption. But again, it's something I never recommend my patients start until they've been checked. And a good iron panel should include ferritin, right? If your iron panel only includes a CBC, which is a complete blood count, um, to check with for anemia, or it only includes like a serum iron and a TIBC, you're missing the mark. Ferritin is huge, especially if you have hair loss. And the reference range for ferritin in, goes from 15 to 150, which is ridiculous and huge. That's very and wide. Most of the time, um, well, because we get our reference ranges by taking a subset of the population and we get our reference ranges. We don't look at if they're ideal. We don't look at if they're optimal. We don't look at if they're healthy. We don't look at any of these things. We take a subset of the population. We go, here's our reference range, right? So um, in women, I want iron to be over 55, or sorry, ferritin, I misspoke, <clears throat> to be over 55. In hair loss patients, I want it to be over 70, right? You wow, don't want it to substantial. be on the upper end, but you do want it to be in the higher end of the reference range. So oftentimes patients will go to their doctors and you know, they have a ferritin of like 18, which the lab didn't flag as abnormal and they get a stamp of, Oh, you're good. Yeah. And then that, yeah. that's a major contributing factor. Yeah. You know, that drives me nuts. The whole aspect of lab results and how they're just based on averages and not optimal levels. And it's almost like when you get a lab result from your doctor, you almost have to doctor yourself if you're not with the right practitioner. I mean, someone like yourself, who's very in depth on this stuff, I'm not talking about that. Yeah. Um, but you know, like, like some primary care docs are just, Oh, you're in the range. You're fine. And it's like, well, no, you know, I'm still having symptoms, Wh whatever it is, you know, not yep. even just hair loss, but, um, yep. you know, we really got to do our homework as patients and doctors, um, just to understand that if we're missing something in our blood work, we have to do some digging. Totally. Yeah. I mean, if I had a dollar for every single time a woman sat down in front of me and I looked at her labs and I was like, there's the cause. And she would, she, she'll say to me, well, I just had these run. Like I just had somebody look at these. Why didn't they say this? And it's because yeah. it's like barely peaking out of the reference range. Right. So like TSH, for example, you want, Oh, TSH that one, that one drives me nuts. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you want TSH to be one to 1.5. And yeah. oftentimes the reference range goes to 4.5. And I've had patients in my office at like a four. And mm -hmm. they, when you get to a four on TSH, you feel like junk. And yeah. nobody even ever said anything. It's so frustrating. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, I see the opposite side of my practice as well, though, where people get this idea of like, okay, this is my ideal. This is where I need to be. And their TSH might be two and a half, right? So maybe 2.5, but they don't have any symptoms that makes us think that they're experiencing anything that's changing in their thyroid. So at that point, you can't just treat the lab. Maybe that's where their body does really, really well, right? Because they don't have any symptoms. So I think that there's this aspect of sometimes people want to change things, right? They want, they want this optimal. They want to change things that don't actually need changed how you know that something needs change is if you have symptoms that's telling you that something needs change. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Um, I don't know if I shared this in previous episodes or not, but I battled thyroid issues, hypothyroidism for a couple of years. And anytime my TSH crossed two, I knew it. I could just feel it. Mm -hmm. And I mean, before I found the right set of, of physicians who sort of helped me through that process, 
I would argue with some doctors like they're like, well, oh, you're yeah. fine. You know, the range is what, four, four point five or five or whatever it is. Like, mm-hmm. well, no, I'm feeling bad at two. So I'm not going to wait to get to five because I'll probably be dead. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> you know, I tell my patients a lot is that it's really interesting when you look at the metabolic aspect of thyroid versus fertility. Right. So oftentimes patients aren't coming in for fertility. They're coming in for the metabolic aspect. But in the fertility world, we know that a TSH TSH over two decreases your fertility chances quite dramatically. So we medicate that really quickly. If you're above like a 2.5 in the fertility world, we're going to medicate you um, because we know that you're going to do better in pregnancy. Uh, It increases your chances for fertility, right? So we don't make you wait. But then somehow in the metabolic world, we're like, suffer till five. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, are you guys trying to kill us? (laughs) (laughs) You know? Yeah, no, it's yeah. that's a that's a hot button for me. I'm sorry, but uh, I couldn't oh, no, agree with you more. It. I couldn't agree with you more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I want to switch to um, PRP. You are like one of I think few physicians that actually use platelet rich plasma as a treatment for hair loss. And the only reason I know what PRP is was I had a um, dental cavitation from a wisdom tooth when I was 15 many years ago that was extracted. And um, my dentist discovered a a cavitation that he biopsied. And, um, you know, I'll I'll save it for a a horror movie to tell you what was found in there. It was awful. Um, It was horrible. I mean, there was like maybe honestly, I mean, not not to change too far to another topic, but there must have been 11 or 12 different microbes that were like code red in the biopsy. It was it was crazy. It was crazy. Yeah. And, um, and so anyway, once that was removed, um, he put the platelet, platelet rich plasma in there and he was explaining to me how it would regenerate, um, some of the, you know, lost tissue that he had sort of excavated. Um, so now you've taken that same technology and applied it to treating people with hair loss and there's not a lot of people doing PRP is there for hair. There are not a lot of people doing PRP well for hair. Okay. So okay. Um, I will explain what I mean by this. So with PRP, um, I actually got into using PRP for hair loss. Um, I was already using it on the skin. Um, I absolutely love treating the skin with PRP in my office. And my mom actually has um, nail pattern baldness. She's had it for, I mean since her menopausal years and, and it was starting to really thin. And so I read this research article and uh, saw this video and I said, we should, we should see what happens. Let's, you can be my guinea pig. And, um, it made such a big difference in her hair that it was, I mean, it was fantastic. Like she touts now that she has hair on her head, um, because of the PRP that we've done on her. Um, so Fast forward, right, Um, after doing it for many years in our practice. So what PRP is doing is PRP is helping to, we inject platelets into the area with release release growth factor. And it releases a bunch of different growth factors, right? So there's growth factors that help um, with the actual stem cells at the bottom of the hair follicle to help them create hair. There's there's, um, growth factors like VEGF that help with... um, with the growth of new blood vessels to the to the actual hair follicle. So one of the things that happens in in hair loss is that we know that you get an inflammatory process that kind of chokes off the hair follicle, the um, blood flow a little bit, right? It's the same way it's the same way minoxidil works. Minoxidil or Rogaine only works by increasing blood flow to the hair follicle. It's the same reason why there was an, a, re, a recent research study that compared caffeine to Rogaine, and caffeine topical actually had a very similar effect to Rogaine. And it makes sense because it, all it is is blood flow, right? So that's one of the things that PRP does is it actually helps with the growth of new blood vessels. So it's not just increasing blood flow like caffeine would, right? But it's actually helping with that that vaso um, growth, like the growth of blood vessels around the hair follicle. So 
What's interesting with PRP is it, it will studies show that it does stop loss and it does increase growth. And um, I kind of alluded to this a little bit earlier, but um, what happens in most hair loss patients, right, especially male pattern baldness, is there's three phases of hair growth. And the first phase, the antigen phase, is supposed to be two to seven years. Well, what happens is that will initially shorten, okay, which causes a miniaturization in the hairs. So you actually have a normal density of hair, right? The amount of hair follicles, but they're miniaturized. So you can see through them and see to the scalp. Um, by the time somebody has visible hair loss that you can actually see, um, that means that 50 over 50% of the hairs in any given area are affected, which is huge. So wow. um, treating it early is important. Um, so that's kind of how PRP works, right? Now, the interesting thing in the PRP community and the PRP kind of world is that, um, especially in the aesthetic side of it, there isn't a lot of clinics that are drawing enough blood to get the amount of platelets that you're looking for. So research shows that you need about 1.5 to 3 billion platelets per milliliter, um, which is a lot of PRP to draw. So the question becomes, how do you know if you have this, right? Platelets change from day to day in a patient. Um, oftentimes you need a lot more blood than you think you do and patients are just not drawing enough. So in our office, we have this technology. We're the only ones in Arizona that have our specific technology. Um, and we're able to, to check the patient's platelet levels that day before their treatment and then draw the specific amount of blood. So for example, in, in a patient who has a really good platelet status, right? We may need to draw 60 mils of blood, which is still more than the majority of the other clinics are drawing, but we need to draw like 60 mils of blood and then we'll concentrate it down to about seven mils of platelets and that will get us right in that sweet spot. Um, but in patients who their platelet status is a little bit lower, we might need to draw 120 mils of blood. That's two giant syringes of blood um, in order to concentrate down to seven mils of platelets. So um, then we can check it after. So when you leave our office, patients know exactly what they got. So they got a treatment, for example, of like 1.9 billion platelets per milliliter, and we injected eight milliliters of platelets, right? Um, and so that's where I'm seeing in the, the sports medicine community is actually where PRP first got its start, right? Was in building collagen in the in the PRP community for, or sorry, in the sports medicine community for sports medicine injuries. And in that community, they do a really much better job at looking at their numbers. And it's only now just starting to go out into kind of the the hair and skin and aesthetics field. And I think that's where it be that's where the difference is, um, because there's a lot of clinics that just aren't drawing enough. And they're not injecting enough to actually get the results that patients are looking for. That's fascinating. And so obviously from what you're explaining, the PRP has a regenerative process in mm -hmm. the blood flow. Mm -hmm. Does that last? I mean, we get to that point, you know, by aging or whatever environmental factors. Um, mm -hmm. How long does that tend to last? I mean, will people start losing hair again in 10 years? What, what's your experience been with that? Yeah. So studies show that um, you need a minimum of three treatments. So in my office, I don't ever do single treatments at the beginning of their care. There's a few reasons for this. The hair growth cycle is really long. So um, if you're going to somebody that's saying that you should be doing your PRP every like two to four weeks for hair, they're not giving it enough time to actually do anything in between. Like the hair growth cycle is really, really long. So um and studies show that you need multiple treatments. So if you're really just doing your one treatment, you're not going to go, you're not going to get to where you want to go. Um, research shows that PRP hits about its, its max efficacy at about six months after your treatment series. So in my office, you have a six month treatment series. Okay. Six months after that's when research generally shows that PRP hits its max benefit. Um, and it shows to continue to have benefit research is showing for about 18 months after right now. Um, that doesn't mean that at 18 months your hair is going to fall out, right? That's one of the things, that's one of the reasons why patients don't love Propecia or Rogaine, right? Um, and that's because usually in those, those two mechanisms are really good at keeping your hair. They're not as good at growing new hair, okay? But they can grow some new hair. Um, but even the hair that it grows, when you stop using it in the majority, vast majority of patients, your hair is going to fall out. 
your gains are going to fall out. And with PRP, we don't see that. We see like that natural decline in hair again, right? At that point. So normally what I recommend my patients do is a maintenance treatment every about 12 months for male pattern baldness, right? So if we're constantly fighting that DHT, that inflammatory process, those genetics, right? Then we might need a little bit more of the maintenance treatment. Um, in patients where, for example, their hair loss was from, I have a patient, she came to me at like 19 for hypothyroidism. Um, her thyroid was in check and she had this bald spot that just wouldn't go away. Um, in her case, right, there's, it's going to be more unlikely that she's going to need maintenance treatments because, um, if you treat the underlying factors, it's easier to treat those underlying factors in younger women than that inflammatory kind of genetic component that happens in male pattern baldness. Um, that said, I have patients, I mean, oftentimes my male patients don't necessarily show up exactly when I tell them to. And so I have patients who like, I mean, I have recommended 12 months. They showed up at like 18 months, 24 months, and their hairs continued to improve. So it hasn't really? only, yeah. So it hasn't only like not declined. Mm -hmm. It's actually continued to improve, which is awesome. Yeah. Is the maintenance treatment that you recommend in 12 months as comprehensive as the initial, or is it just like a smaller series of injections? How does that work? Yeah, so it's one injection, like one okay. injection treatment. So we inject all over the scalp, but one treatment. Yep. Okay. That's and you I inject mean. all like in the areas where the hair is missing or, or thinning? I inject in all areas of loss. Yes. So I will assess the head for all areas of loss. If, if And then if a patient's a candidate, we'll do injections in all areas of loss. The other thing that I do is I buy these special needles from Germany. They're a five-star needle. So it's actually, like I tell my patients five for the price of one. And um, they're a four millimeter needle, which means, which is actually the level of the hair follicle. So it makes treatments go faster um, and makes them just a lot better for patients. Um, and then we inject all through the area of loss. The other thing that I don't do that some clinics do, but I don't, is some clinics will use like PRF, which is platelet-rich fibrin, um, or an activated PRP. So they'll activate their PRP with like calcium. And the reason why I don't do that is because they're both kind of a jellier substance, right? Which if you're using a jellier substance, for example, in the skin, right? If you're injecting where you would inject filler and you want that PRP to stay, that's really helpful, right? In the hair, though, if you think about it, you're having if you're having hair loss, um, there's a good chance that you're having hair loss over a large portion of your scalp, right? It might not be all of your scalp, but over a large portion of it. Um, so what I like is a thinner PRP um, because when you inject it in, it's going to spread a little bit, right? It's going to be like every other liquid where it's going to spread. So then you don't have to, patients aren't quite as like, worried about, oh my God, did you get this one spot? Like there's one spot right here and I didn't feel you put the needle right there. And so I always get to explain to them, it's fine. It's going to spread. Like it has a diameter of spread that, that we think about when we're injecting. Hmm. Now, earlier in our conversation, you had touched on genetics. Mm -hmm. um, is that, what's your approach? When do you assess or, or when do you come to the conclusion that genetics are a factor? Like, is it when all the labs look normal or how, how do you determine that? And then if so, how do you treat it? Good question. I mean, genetics are always kind of a component, right? I mean, even if we think about, so if we go to like hormone replacement in women, right? And we think about a pellet hormone replacement, so testosterone replacement in the form of pellets. I get a lot of patients that are very, um, have been given very high doses of testosterone as women, probably higher than they should have. And it's funny because everybody will have a different side effect from it, right? We always want to get them lower, but everybody will have a different side effect from it. And some women, right, are more prone to hair loss. So it, whereas somebody else might have sky high levels of testosterone, but they're not experiencing that as their symptom. Does that make sense? It's the same yeah. thing in men, right? Like there's some men where they aren't prone to hair loss. They're not going to, like, I mean, it's not, everybody has a natural thinning of their hair as they age, but they're not going to experience hair loss the same way as somebody else would. Whereas mm -hmm. somebody else in the genetics, like we're, we're constantly battling that. I think the hormones and the nutritional piece comes in as a way of doing our best form of medicine to make sure that there isn't something else going on, right? 
So mm -hmm. the last thing we want is to go chalk it up to genetics, which is what usually happens, right? Like in male pattern baldness, well, it's genetic, like too bad. And there's something else going on, right? Like maybe levels of testosterone to estrogen are off. Um, maybe vitamin D is off. Maybe zinc is off. All of those things, right? Maybe thyroid is off. So it's, I think genetics play a big role, but you don't just want to have a physician who just washes their hands and says, oh, genetics, bye. Yeah. So... Yeah. I don't know if that helped or answered your question at all, yeah, but that's definitely. my thoughts on that. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, I know you treat a lot of females in your practice that deal with hair loss, and our society puts a lot of emphasis on appearance and beauty, and so uh, hair loss in women can be particularly traumatic. Is there is there a, a counseling side to your practice? Like, do, do these... Are, do you see women that are very upset and traumatized by this? And um, is there an emotional component that you sort of deal with as well, not just the medical component, just because of the um, the nature of the condition they're dealing with? Yes. Yeah, so there is an emotional component to it. Um, I think in women especially, right, like in men, they struggle when they lose their hair for sure, but it is different in a woman. It's different. Um, like we expect it, right? Like, come on, like, like most guys, we expect it. So I'm not minimizing guys' pain. No. Um, but it's women don't expect it. Men, it's like the, some of the guys in my family are losing their hair and like I'm probably up next and I got to just, I got a deal, right? Mm -hmm. um, but there's way more emphasis on the appearance of women in our culture, which probably makes this more painful. You know what I, you know what I mean? Absolutely. And I think that there's an aspect of, um, men do kind of expect it, but it's also like sociologically considered like normal, right? Like it's oh, okay. That's, that's how men age. Right. And in mm -hmm. women, it's considered a sign of like poor health or something, right? Like there's, it's given more emphasis, I think. So I think in terms of the social, the kind of like psychological component, um, the hardest thing to deal with is that women want after, so first of all, women are not given good options for their hair loss ever. Um, oftentimes women's hair loss is just too diffuse, meaning that it covers too much of the scalp to be candidates for things like hair loss uh, like hair replacement surgeries and plugs and things like that, right? Um, so minoxidil is a good option, but oftentimes in women, their hair will come back a different texture. So I've had women where their hair comes back kind of like cotton wooly. And then I've had women who have thin hair where their hair comes back curly. And so it doesn't always happen, but oftentimes women don't really like that. Um, Propecia is now being used in menopausal women. Um, that is definitely an off-label use for Propecia. Um, but in younger women, not, not a safe option at all. Um, so the question becomes, well, what are we left with? Right. And so, um, part of that conversation, especially in male pattern baldness patients in menopause is that idea of the fact that we are always going to be battling this a little bit, right? Um, it's not going to be that you do a series and you have a head of hair like you're 20 and you wander out of the office and it's like you're 20 for the rest of your life. Like there is going to be a little bit of that battle, right? Um, now there are things that we can do to help with that, making sure that nutrition status is good, making sure that the rest of the factors that we need are good, making sure that um, like even doing things like salt palmetto in women can be helpful. Um, there's a lot of different options. And so part of that setting, I think good expectations is really important. Um, and then if there was some sort of like major psychological component causing a little bit of like anxiety or depression or something, then I would probably refer out. Um, I'm actually a huge advocate for, which if people knew me as a practitioner and as a doctor, they'd be very surprised that I'm about to say this, but I'm actually a huge advocate for hypnotherapy. Um, I know really? people, just amazing hypnotherapists, amazing. And I think it's a really great way to, it's not what you think it is. Um, and it's a great way to kind of access the subconscious and start to change a little bit of the programming and the wiring. So I will send out for that sometimes. Hmm. Well, um, you know, Dr. Mayor, this has been a fascinating conversation and I, I really appreciate um, you taking the time to speak with us today. How can people find you? Yeah. So, um, 
Our website is ethos, E-T-H-O-S, scottsdale.com. And then I also have a YouTube channel, which is Dr. Alexandra Mayer. Um, and then you can find me on Instagram under Dr. Alex Mayer. And in all of those things, uh, my goal is just to kind of give out good content, give out good resources for for women. Um, and in hair loss specifically, I have a few videos on hair loss that I've talked about. Um, so those are good ways to kind of contact me. That's great. I'll make sure to include those in the show notes. And I know there are other areas of your practice beyond hair loss. So I hope you'll consider joining us again for a future episode. Cause, I would uh, love to join you again for a future episode. Awesome. So okay. Well, we'll take you up on that. Awesome. Thanks for being with us today. Absolutely. Great to see you. And that'll do it for this edition of the Natural Man Podcast. Please subscribe and check out our other episodes. And we're also on Instagram at Natural Man Podcast. Thanks for joining us. My name is Mike C. Stay healthy. This has been the Natural Man Podcast. Subscribe to our podcast for more episodes. Come on a journey like no other where you will discover many rogues that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey Into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com. The Podcast Super Friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from Branch Out Programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jag and Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundle from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.